You may be seated. I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 21. John chapter 21. New Year's is coming up quickly. And every time we come to New Year's, we have yet another opportunity to reflect on the last year and to look forward with great anticipation to the next year. I think first and foremost, we, we tend to, in our fleshly nature, stare at the physical things that have happened this last year. Such things as planting a church by God's grace. He has enabled us to be here from October 20th, really a month before that, but launching on October 20th to, to being here today. That's amazing. Praise the Lord for that. Maybe there have been new additions to your family. Maybe there have been new feats, new explorations, new excitements. We tend to stare at the physical things, and that's not wrong. But I think we're less inclined to stare at the, the spiritual activity of the last year. How was your last year spiritually? How was it? Let me, let me just explain just my heart with this morning. I, I want to stare at the last year briefly, and then I want to look forward to the next year with great anticipation of living for Jesus Christ above all things. So before we, we move to that anticipation in the next year, I want to look just briefly at last year. Let me give you a couple questions that might check your heart as I was even thinking through this in my own heart. Did you glory in the cross this last year? Did you learn something about the cross? Did you remain in the same exact knowledge that you've always had about the cross and just, yeah, it's cool and I needed it and that's it? How about scripture memory? How'd you do on memorizing scripture? I know some of you are trying to memorize Philippians, the book of Philippians. I think some of you are already through chapter 1 into chapter 2. Did you memorize scripture? Did you spend time with God and his word daily? Or was it once a week or once a month? How's your prayer life? That one's always just, you can always answer, should have been better. <laughs> How's your prayer life? Yeah, should have been better. How is your life of evangelism? I was thinking through, what's an attainable goal as far as evangelism is concerned? Did you share the gospel with at least 52 people this last year, once a week. Did you share the gospel with one person a week? That would give us 52. How is your life of evangelism? How is your giving? Did you truly give of your first fruits? Did you trust God to provide? How about anxiety? Were you an anxious person this last year? Were there things that popped up this last year where you struggled to trust the Lord? Did you fight sin? Did you grow in learning how to fight sin? Did you grow in your hatred for sin? Or do you hate sin just about as much as you did last year? There are so many places that we can look internally and spiritually and see, man, I needed to grow. And my goal this morning is not to discourage you. My goal is just to present our own souls to us and realize that even in the good things, we, we can still excel still more. We can grow. If you're like me, you look at people in the scriptures and you think, man, if only I could be like fill in the blank. Spiritual heroes in the scriptures. Men and women of great radical faith. 
If only I could be like Noah, built an ark, trusting the Lord, when it had never even rained at that point. God says, it's going to rain. He says, I believe you, it's going to rain. Everybody around him, what is rain? We don't even know what that is. And he says, trust the Lord, it's going to happen. And yet sometimes when we stare at the spiritual heroes like a Noah, we tend to forget he was a drunkard. We tend to forget he had some messed up problems. Oh, why can't we be just like Abraham? He had faith enough to get up and obey God no matter what. Leave your home, leave your family, just go. And he went. Oh, but he lied multiple times. Even when God tried to correct him and say, stop, he kept lying. He was a liar. Oh, I would love to be like Jacob and the faith that he had to say, God, I want to be blessed by you and I'm not letting you go until you bless me. But he was a deceiver. Moses was hot-tempered. Gideon was idolatrous. Samson was lustful. Eli was passive. Saul was insecure. Even for all the good things that Saul might have done, he was insecure. David was a murderer and an adulterer. Solomon was just purely hedonistic. Elijah was self-centered. Jonah was a racist. Even the apostle Paul did not start out his life very well. A murderer killing Christians in the name of Phariseeism, I mean, just hatred for Christians. So as I think through, okay, God, I want to be used by you, and I want radical faith like those men, we have to remember that God does not use unbroken, perfect people. God uses the dirtiest, the lowliest, the humbled, the broken. God has only ever used ordinary people distinguished by their obvious failures and struggles to highlight his glory and his grace. So as you look back, how was this last year? Was it good? Was it fruitful? Was it productive? Did it glorify the Lord in every aspect? Were there places that you could have loved him more? Of course there were. And as we stare at our sin, I don't want us to just glory in our sin and say, well, woe is me. I am just messed up and this year is going to be no different. No, I want us to look at this next year in light of the fact that we are humbled by our sin, humbled by our need for a savior. Maybe of all of the people in scripture of whom this truth that God uses broken, messed up people is most glaringly obvious would be that of Peter. This, this man of God, remember his failings? They're too numerous to name here this morning, but just a couple. Remember on the Sea of Galilee, Peter was walking on the sea. He said, um, Lord, I wish to come out to you. He's able to step out onto the waves and starts walking, but then because he has inconsistent faith, he suddenly remembers, wait a second, humans can't walk on water, falls into the sea. Remember in Caesarea Philippi when he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, yes, blessed are you because flesh and blood doesn't reveal this. My father revealed this to you. This is, this is good. You are right. And then Jesus says, I need to die. I'm going to go to Jerusalem and be killed. And on three days, I will raise from the dead. And Peter takes him by his, his robe, his jacket, and throws him up against the wall and says, how dare you? Messiahs don't talk like that. There's no way you're going to die. And remember what Jesus says, get behind me, who? Satan. He denied Christ three times, even to a little tiny slave girl. I just like to think of Chelsea. I know it's older than Chelsea, but I just like to think of Chelsea going, do you know Jesus? And Peter being scared out of his mind. No, I never knew him. I wasn't with him. 
Peter was inconsistent in his faith. He was defiant of God's redemptive plan through Christ. He was rejecting knowing Jesus Christ. This is huge. And some might say, man, this disqualifies him from ever being used by God or ever ever having another good year ever again. I would submit to you, no. This sets Peter up in a similar place that you and I are seeing our sin, seeing our need for a Savior. This sets Peter up for the best years of his life. John chapter 21, verse 15. This is a familiar scene to us. This is really restoration of Peter after he had fallen and after he had denied Christ three times. Jesus has been raised from the dead. He has died. He has been raised from the dead. He has already visited a number of people. And here we find ourselves in verse 15, where Jesus is going to speak with Peter. John chapter 21, verse 15, is going to speak with Peter, and we're going to listen in to the dialogue that Jesus has with Peter. And I think, and I pray, that as we hear Jesus speak to Peter, I think three things will come out of this text that are three qualities we must have if we are going to live to glorify God this new year. Three qualities we must have. But first, background. Where are they? They're on the Sea of Galilee. There's a little fire going on, and John does something interesting. If you go back to verse 9, before we get to the conversation, if you go back to verse 9, John tells us when they got out on the land, they saw a what? A charcoal fire. Why does he just say fire? Why doesn't he throw out charcoal? What does charcoal have to do with anything? If you go back to John 18. I think this sets the stage for Peter to truly be knocked down, remembering his failure and being exalted by the Lord to say, now feed my sheep. Are there certain smells that can bring you back to a certain place in time? Maybe the the smell of freshly cut grass. Maybe, I know for me, every time I go someplace where it just smells like the worst trash you could possibly imagine, it reminds me of when I was in the Philippines and we were actually at a a trash dump sharing the gospel with homeless people. I mean, every time I smell, I go, man, that's just an eighth of, uh, of just a fraction of what that smell was like in the Philippines. But smells take you back to places. A charcoal fire has a very distinct smell and John 18, verse 18, says this. Now, the slaves, this is right before Jesus is going to be crucified during his trials. The slaves and the officers were standing there, having made a what? A charcoal fire, for it was cold. And they were warming themselves, and Peter was also with them, standing and warming himself. So while he's standing by this charcoal fire, he is going to to deny Jesus Christ three times, And now here in John 21, as Jesus is about to restore Peter, he makes a charcoal fire. Do you remember your failure, Peter? Do you remember? He starts by saying in verse 15, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? The lesson has already begun. The rebuke has already begun when Jesus calls Peter Simon. Simon was his old name. Peter was the name given to Peter by Jesus to say, you are a new man. You're a new creature. You're a new creation. I want you to live differently. 
And so really, every time, almost every time we see Jesus calling Peter, Peter in the gospel records, it's when he's doing something great. It's when he's doing something that's like his new creature, his new creation, his new nature. When we see him reverting back to his old ways, Jesus pulls out Simon. Oh, Simon, you're acting like your old sinful fleshly self. So here, Jesus says, Simon, do you remember your old sinful fleshly self? Do you remember? And he asks them this specifically, do you love me more than these? Now, the these there is, it's not specific. It could really refer to one of two things, either the fish and and the boats and the occupation that Peter used to have of being a fisherman and had apparently returned to, Jesus could be asking, do you love me more than your work? Are you willing to leave it all behind again and become fishers of men again? Or, and I actually prefer thinking of it this way, because he's surrounded by the disciples. Jesus could be saying, do you love me more than all these disciples? Do you truly love me more than all these disciples sitting here? Which would bring Peter all the way back to the upper room, When Peter says, even if all of them will fall away, I love you more than all of them, and so I will never deny you. I will never fall away. Jesus is kind of asking, do you really love me with that kind of dedication, with that kind of love? Simon, old fleshly Simon, do you really love me more than the others like you said you did? And of course, his answer has to be, I don't love you in that way. I do love you. Notice Peter's answer is not, I love you more than these. Because he can't say, I love you more than all those disciples. Because he acted just like the disciples. In fact, none of the other disciples, we have record of them denying Christ. Peter was worse than all of the disciples. Instead, he just says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. I, I can't say I love you more than all the other disciples. And honestly, I can't say I love you with the kind of love that you're asking me. There's a little bit of a word play going on here. Jesus asks, do you, and you know the, there's three words in the Greek for love. Agape is the highest, most dedicated, most affectionate, most covenant-keeping kind of love. And Jesus asks, do you agape me? Do you love me with the kind of love that will sacrifice no matter what it costs? Peter doesn't say, yes, I agape you. He says, yes, I phileo you. Second kind of love. Second Greek word for love, which just means I like you. I'm affectionate towards you. I really enjoy hanging out with you, but that's all I can say. Right now, I cannot say that I will sacrifice everything for you. I cannot say that I will die for you. I can't say that I agape you. I can't say that I love you more than these, and I can't say that I agape you. I can only say I phileo you. This brings us to the first quality that we must have. If we're going to be like Peter, learn from our mistakes from this last year, and press on to know Jesus Christ and glorify him in the new year, number one, we need humility. We must have the quality of humility. We need to be humbled by our sin and humble as we live in front of Jesus Christ. We can't say, I'm awesome, I'm doing great, look at me. The more we stare at our sin, the more we realize, I am nothing and I need Jesus. I need him. That's why it's good to look at our shortcomings. It's good to look at our failures. It's good to look at our sin. It humbles us. It's not wallow in the guilt of our sin because Jesus did away with that once and for all, but it's good to, to simmer for a little while in our 
and our failures and see, you know what? I need a Savior. Micah 6.8, do justly, do what is right, live righteously, love mercy. Not only love being compassionate to others, but love the grace that God gives to you for the times you fail to live justly. And walk what? Walk humbly with your God. Everything that we are is owing to God's grace alone. This is why self-reliance in life, if you rely on yourself this next year, it is so deadly. It's precisely because self-reliance is completely antithetical to the very gospel that you are preaching and proclaim. The gospel says you can do nothing. And in fact, if you try to do anything, you nullify the grace of God. So if you say, thank you, Jesus, for the cross, but I've got it from here, you gut the gospel of its very heart. Peter's failure had taught him this. He's no longer answering Jesus, of course I agape you, and of course I love you more than everyone around. I love you more than anyone in the world. No, now he's saying, I I honestly can't say I love you more than these disciples. They probably love you more than I do, and I can't say that I um, agape you. I I have an affection for you, but I can't say that. My life isn't backing it up. I just denied you three times. But what is Jesus' response I find this amazing. As Peter is humbled and is humble because he's already been knocked down. I love how A.W. Tozer says, it's highly unlikely that God can use a man greatly until he has first hurt him deeply. Peter has been wounded and has humbled himself through his humiliation. And Jesus does not say, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Great, let's eat. Let's have breakfast. What does he do next? He says this, amazing, astounding words. End of verse 15. Tend my lambs. Do you love me? Well, I I can't say that I love you more than these, and I can't say that I agape you. I can only say I really have good affection for you, and I enjoy hanging out with you. That's all I can say right now. And Jesus says, I'll give you ministry to do. I can use you. You don't have to say, oh, I love you more than every single person in the entire universe. If you say, I struggle with my love for you, Jesus says, I can use you. Do this task, do this ministry, feed my sheep, tend my lambs. Again, verse 16, he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Do you agape me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. I still cannot say that I agape you. I love you with an affectionate kind of love but my life doesn't back up that I will sacrifice anything, that I would willingly die for you. I denied you in front of a little slave girl. I think it's no coincidence, obviously, that Jesus asks Peter these things three times. For every time that Peter denied, Jesus is really restoring Peter here and saying, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? This is restoration taking place because Peter has humbled himself and says, I do love you, but I can't claim the kind of love that you demand, that you deserve. I don't love you with that kind of love. One pastor says it this way, as, as far as looking at our sin and humbling ourselves in, in front of the Lord, he says this, it is my sin, if my sinfulness appears to me to be in any way smaller or less detestable in comparison with the the sins of others, then I am still not recognizing my sinfulness at all. How many times do we do that? I'm not as bad as that person. 
Uh, at least I'm not as bad as that person. I know I mess up, but it's not like that. He goes on. My sin is of necessity the worst, the most grievous, the most reprehensible. Brotherly love will find any number of extenuations for the sins of others. Only for my sins there is no apology whatsoever. Therefore, my sin is the worst. And then he says this, he who would serve his brother in the fellowship must sink all the way down to these depths of humility. A self-conscious sinner will minister to other sinners with love. A self-righteous person can be a brutal weapon in the enemy's hand to damage Christ's sheep. Brothers and sisters, are we humbled by our failures this last year? Are we puffed up by our successes and claim, look, we're good, we've done it, we're pretty awesome, and now we can be used by God because of how cool we are? Or do we, like Peter, say, I don't even love you the way that you deserve to be loved, but I love you as much as my heart can know to love you? I do. Jesus would say, minister, minister. Do the work of leading others, discipling others, minister. First, we need the quality of humility if we are going to live 2014 to glorify Jesus Christ. Secondly, we need the quality of love. Obviously, this is a word that's being thrown out a bunch in this section of Scripture. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. Do you love me? There is only one question here from Jesus to Peter. It's not, do you love to do ministry? Do you love other people? Do you love to study? Do you love to pray? Do you love to do evangelism? Do you love apologetics? Okay, if you say yes to those things, then I can use you. No, it's very simply, do you love me? Do you love me? Peter answers the first two times, yes, I phileo you. I wish I could say I agape you, but I can only say I phileo you. After the second time in verse 16, he says, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. And Jesus says, shepherd my sheep. And then verse 17, he said to him a third and final time, Simon, son of John, do you, and here Jesus changes the word. We could put it in our Bibles, do you even love me? Do you even phileo me? You keep claiming, okay, I can't say I agape you, but I phileo you. I love you with an affectionate brotherly love. And Jesus says, can you really even say that? Can you really even say that you have that kind of love for me? Peter is grieved because he said to him this third time, do you even have that kind of love? And what does he say? Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. You know that I phileo you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Brothers and sisters, if we desire to keep the commandments of Jesus Christ and glorify him in so doing, then we need to love Jesus. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If we're struggling to keep commandments, then it says something about our love and devotion to Jesus Christ. In ministry, there is a huge buzzword, buzz phrase that's going around constantly, and it's that of burning out. Pastors who are burning out, who used to just be radical and on fire for the Lord, and now they're just burning out and struggling. And in my own heart, I understand that, and I want to be wise, and I want to be careful with my time, but I really think, in our heart of hearts, I think that 
pastors and, and other people in, in different areas of ministry burn out, not because they are so busy with life and with ministry. I think they burn out because they've lost, they've left their first love. They are no longer on fire with passion to share of Jesus Christ. What compels my heart to preach and to teach and to study is not a theological system. It's not academia. It's the overwhelming beauty of Jesus Christ. That's why I love to shepherd and to preach. Our danger as believers is not that we might burn out. Our danger as believers is that we would black out. That is, that we would lose consciousness of the one for whom our greatest affections have compelled us to follow him. Do you love Jesus? Do you love him with an undying, unwavering, passionate love? Is that the reason why you serve? And I praise the Lord for all of you who do serve. For those of you who are here this morning to set up early, praise the Lord. But can I ask, why do you serve? Do you serve out of love for Jesus Christ? Don't serve Jesus to work off your bad works. Don't serve Jesus to earn his love or to catch his eye. The issue is that of love. Do you love Jesus Christ with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength? How can you tell if you love Jesus? We can always tell what we love, what we spend our time on, what we spend our money on, what we think about, what we talk about, those kinds of things. That's what we love the most. Is that Jesus Christ to you, or do you just show up to church to check off some religious activity and then go home feeling better about yourself? Now, there's a chance for a misunderstanding here. Some people might say, great, all I have to do is love Jesus. That's all I have to do. Have some emotional, affectionate connection, and that's all I have to do. Praise the Lord. I just have to love him. I am saying that you have to love him, but there is a huge difference between saying without love for Jesus, nothing else that you do matters and saying love is the only thing that matters. There's a big difference between those two. I'm, I'm saying without love, nothing else that you do matters, but I'm not saying love is the only thing that matters because not only do we need humility and not only do we need love, but thirdly and finally, we need obedience we need obedience if we're, if we're going to glorify the Lord. In 2014, we need obedience. Jesus, in verse 18, says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, Peter, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself, walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God, and when he had spoken this, he said to him, what? Follow me. Follow me. Do you love me? Will you follow me? Do you love me? Will you follow me? If you say, oh, I love Jesus, and you do nothing that Jesus tells you to do, then that love is equal to the kind of faith in James that is dead because it doesn't produce anything. We don't obey the Lord to get love from him and to earn favor from him, we obey the Lord because we already have his favor. If we love Jesus, it will necessarily make us obey. Genuine love, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so Jesus says, follow me. But he doesn't just say that abstractly. He says something that I just think is so, we have to put ourselves into Peter's sandals to hear these words. Just days earlier, Peter had denied Jesus in front of a slave girl, scared to death that she might rat him out 
take him to the Jews, take him to the Romans, and be crucified. That's what he was scared of just a couple days earlier. And now Jesus says, in reality, you're going to be crucified. Somebody else is going to gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go and stretch out your hands. That is a phrase that means you will be crucified. That's how you're going to die. Now, if you and I hear that, somebody comes to me and says, Patrick, you're going to be crucified. That's not the best piece of news you told me all day. That's not very encouraging to me. But to Peter, I think on the one hand, he shudders thinking, that's how I'm going to die. But I think in a millisecond, his heart soars. Why? Because now he knows I'm going to make it to the end. I denied Jesus over here. Jesus is restoring me to himself, and I'm not going to fall ultimately, utterly, entirely. Brothers and sisters, if you have fallen, maybe in grievous ways this last year, can I plead with you to listen to these words? If you humble yourself and you love Jesus, turn to him and follow him, you will not fail ultimately. You will not fall ultimately. I think Peter's heart soars. Can you imagine every day waking up knowing that you will be crucified for, that that last moment at the end of your life you'll be crucified for Christ? Can you imagine that every day? I don't think I'd hang around carpenters much. I don't think I'd go to the wood shops. I think if there's a tree, I'd cut it down and try and just destroy it as fast, as quickly as possible. Every day waking up thinking, is this going to be the day that I'm crucified? Is this it? Is this my last day. So you say, okay, so I need to love Jesus and I need to follow him, but that just means I need to die for him, right? I need to love him and I need to die for him. No, the issue isn't dying for him, it's living for him. Only when you follow Jesus in the little things in life will you be able to follow him in the ultimate things in life when you have to make that choice. Do I deny Christ and live or do I claim to follow him and profess Jesus Christ before man and know that my father will confess me before him. That's what I want. After saying this, Peter hears these words and Jesus says, follow me. And verse 20, Peter turns around and he sees the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. Who's that? It's John. Sees John this is the same one who had leaned back on his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? So Peter sees him and he says to Jesus, hey, wait a second. What about this man? You've told me about my death and commanded me to follow you. What about that guy? What's going to happen to him? What's his death? And notice what Jesus says. If I want, verse 22, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? If I want him, us knowing that Jesus hasn't come yet the second time, if I want him to live for 2,000 plus years, what's that to you? Because all you need to concern yourself with, Peter, is two words. Follow me. Obey me. Obey me. Just follow me. If I want him to remain until I come, what's that to you? You, Peter. You follow me. Interesting that our Bible translates it, you follow me, because that's literally what the Greek says. You can use one Greek word to say, follow me, and it's implied you need to follow me, singularly, you need to do that. But Jesus specifically says, you follow me, emphatically. Don't want you to miss this, Peter. 
Don't worry about John or any of the other disciples. You follow me. That's what we must do. We must obey. After being humbled by our sin and coming in utter humility before the Lord, and then loving him for lavishing us with his grace, we need to listen to the call here of rigorous discipleship and die to ourselves. One pastor says it this way, it amounts to the elimination of yourself in order that Christ might live totally through you as he designs. We need to turn from our sin. If we love him, it will produce something, and we need to turn from our sin and follow him. If somebody says this morning, oh, I love Jesus, but it doesn't produce any obedience, that love is not genuine love. It's dead love. It's like the the guy who told his girlfriend, I'll cross the burning sand, I'll swim the widest ocean, I'll fight wild animals to get to your side, and if it doesn't rain, I'll be over tonight. I'll do anything possible to get to you. Eh, but it's raining, so I don't really want to. Is that genuine love? Is that deep, true love? Genuine affection will produce obedience. You say, Patrick, you don't know the sin that I've been involved in this last year. You don't know. I would say, no, I don't. Jesus does. And he says to you, do you love me? Follow me. Follow me. Your repentance must become as notorious as your sin once was. I love the way the Puritan author says that. Your repentance must become as notorious as your sin once was. Turn. Turn. You say, oh, I'm going to struggle. We know Peter still struggled. He struggled time and time again. He failed time and time again. Reminds me of the song, Jesus what a strength in weakness. Let me hide myself in thee. And it says this tempted, tried, and the author says sometimes failing. And I've always bristled against that word. It should be often failing. Tempted, tried, and often failing. He, my strength, my victory wins. It's not me that's going to do it. It's him. It's him. Do you love Jesus? With utter humility, will you come before him and say, I need your help. I can't do this on my own. And will you follow him? But notice, we'll we'll end here because I want to do a couple other things this morning. Notice Jesus does not ask Peter, did you love me last year? He doesn't ask Peter, will you love me in the year to come? It's right now. Do you love me right now? Let the Lord take care of the years to come. As you are faithful in the little, he has promised you'll be faithful in the much. But brothers and sisters, let the faithfulness of our Savior and his promise to keep you to the end be what motivates you to follow him. God has promised in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, that he will finish in perfection the work that he has begun in us. We, li- we see that lived out in Peter and we can bank on that promise for our own lives. I want us to listen to a song that preaches that truth and I want us to think through these three qualities of humility, of love, and of obedience to the Lord, following him no matter what. Maybe this last year has been one of the greatest years spiritually of your entire life. 
don't ride on the fumes of last year into this next year. Live every single day in humility, in genuine love, and in obedience to Jesus Christ. But know without a shadow of a doubt that he will begin what he, he will complete what he began. He did it. He started it. He's the one. And he has promised to finish it. Let's listen to this song.